As we continue our series through the book of Colossians, this morning we find ourselves in Colossians 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 6. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Paul writes, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, in preparing for this sermon, um, I was reminded of a 2015 Dutch historical drama called Land of Mine. Land of Mine. After World War II, Denmark was freed after five years of German occupation. Horrible repression, difficulty, suffering. After five years, they were freed. When they were freed, they realized that over 45,000 mines had been put on the western beachfront of the nation. And so what they did is they conscripted many Germans to be the minesweepers and to clear those areas out. And if they would clear out six mines an hour, they told the soldiers, even some German boys, all of this was based on a true story, that if they would clear out six mines an hour, then they could go home in a few months if they survived that long. And to watch the movie and to see what happened, I cannot imagine something more terrible or terrifying than trying to clear out all of these buried mines in the sand. Except for the minefield that we have in our passage this morning, <laughs> which also strikes fear into the heart of most ministers. 
Friends, I think we have to admit that this passage is a very difficult passage. Here the, line, uh, the landmines are not buried. They're obvious for all to see. It's a very difficult passage in our cultural context because we have issues related to race, related to slavery, related to patriarchy, issues that have caused many to discredit the Bible or anything that would make these kinds of statements. There are many who view this text as incompatible with who they view God to be. And so this morning I would like us to to look at this and reflect on this and see what it means and how it applies. Okay, so what's all the fuss? Why so much difficulty here? Well, it's because of what we might call the household codes that Paul mentions in Colossians 3 and 4, when he calls wives to submit to their husbands, children to submit to their parents, slaves to obey their masters. Why is Paul doing this? What is he saying? And how does that apply? Let's look at what I view to be the controlling verses, the verses that bracket this section and provide our interpretive key. I think Paul is concerned with keeping a good witness before the world. Like he says at the very end, he's in prison. Why? What was the purpose that he's in prison for at the, in, in Colossians chapter 4? So that he might proclaim the mystery of Christ. He encourages the Colossians to pray for him in this endeavor. He wants them to pray in general that they would have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't want anything that they did or said to compromise their opportunity to be a witness for the Lord Jesus. And fulfilling these household codes would enable them to do that. It would provide order in the home and a good witness to the world of Paul's day. So let's look at this. Look at the framing. Look at the bracketing. Chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of Jesus. That's a controlling verse. That's an interpretive key. Whatever you do in word or in deed, how you love people and care for people and serve people, interact with them, do so in the name of Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Go down to 4 verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The church's witness to the world was imperative in the way they loved each other and treated each other. It was extremely important. Okay, so it feels kind of abrupt. We've been like learning about this incredibly high Christology that Nate mentioned. In chapter 3, Paul uses the language of what? Put on, put off. Put on kindness and graciousness, be forbearing, be forgiving because God has forgiven you. Put off things, you know, enmity, hatred, slander, things like that. He uses this language of put on and put off. And then it kind of feels like there's an abrupt shift. But I think what Paul is doing is he's trying to prepare the church 
to live in a world that was very hostile to the church. He's reiterating these household codes, okay, that would in effect show what kind of people they were. So this sounds foreign to our modern ears, but let's look at verses 18 through 21 and how he introduces these household codes. It's not just here in Colossians, but also in Ephesians and elsewhere. Paul writes in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, it's fitting, it's appropriate, it's right for wives to submit to their husbands. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, when you're submitting to your husband, he has a derivative authority. You're ultimately submitting to Christ. We see that in 3.25, when slaves are encouraged to submit to their masters, the end of verse 24 of chapter 3, he tells them you are serving the Lord Christ. That's a very important qualifier. In submitting to our God-given authorities, whoever they may be, we are ultimately submitting to Christ. We're under his ultimate authority. We are serving him. Wives, submit to your husbands, verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. He qualifies it in a sense. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't abuse this responsibility. Um, unfortunately, like in the movie Spider-Man, you know, the phrase with great power comes great responsibility, kind of lessens these truths. It feels like a little bit, but Paul is saying with this responsibility, this role that God gives you, you've got to handle it with care, with graciousness, with graciousness, with great wisdom. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Don't be dictatorial with them. Don't lord it over them. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as what? Do you remember? As Christ loved the church. He further qualified it. What did Jesus do? Who gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He goes on to say, children, obey your parents. Now, what's interesting there is wives are called to submit to their husbands, but children are called to obey their parents. Slaves are called to obey their masters. Have you ever noticed that uh, difference, that distinction? Wives submit, children obey. What is the difference? The difference is wives are equal to their husbands, obviously, in every way, and submission is voluntary. You're voluntarily bringing yourself under the leadership and headship of another. It's important to understand that biblical submission does not imply inequality or inferiority in, every, in any way whatsoever. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, was submissive, to God the Father, he was equal in power and glory to the Father, but he was submissive to his Father. Submission does not in any sense convey inferiority. Now, there's a number of ways to view passages like this, these household codes. 
You may have heard some of these before. Some people view the Bible as being culturally conditioned, which it was, every passage of scripture is given in a certain cultural context. Some people view these household codes as culturally conditioned and not really relevant to today. That societies change, cultures evolve, role relationships go right along with it. So some view it as culturally conditioned, not as relevant to today. Then there's another group who have a very high view of scripture and they're called egalitarians. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that term, the term egalitarian. Egalitarians read a passage like this, okay, through the lens of the new covenant. Galatians 3.28 says what? There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we are all one in Christ Jesus and heirs according to the promise. So folks who have an egalitarian view, view that in the new covenant, these role differences in marriage go away because of the news, newness of the new covenant, our equality in Christ, we're equal in Christ, no role differences in marriage. They view those role differences to have come from the fall. And now in the new covenant, oneness in Christ, no role differences in the church or home. And many egalitarians have a very high view of the Bible. Our denomination is what we would call complementarian, where we understand that oneness and equality in Christ, but we think these role relationships in the church and home go back to creation. Paul roots the relationship between men and women, he roots it in 1 Timothy 2, back to the beginning, back before the fall, back at the creation of men and women. And so complementarians understand men and women to be equal in value and dignity and worth, but they complement each other. Their roles are different. There are distinctions in the genders, and we have differing roles in marriage and in the church. There's lots of overlap, but there are true differences. Now, when I do premarital counseling, you have to carefully teach this and nuance this because submission has been, submission has been something that's been very abused in the history of the church as men have not loved their wives like Christ loved the church. Jesus loved the church by giving himself for her, by putting her needs above his own. Sadly, in the history of marriage, many men have not done that. It's important to nuance this, to clarify this, but sometimes in premarital counseling, you so qualify submission that it dies the death of a thousand cuts. It's glorifying to our God when wives voluntarily submit to the headship of their husband. That does, imply, that does not imply being lesser than or inferior. It's actually an exalting thing. This is the way that God has created the family. 
And to see a home where husband and wife are complementing each other and serving each other and coming alongside each other and, and using their unique gifts for God's glory is a witness to the world. It's not something that we should shrink back from or apologize for. Relationship between a husband and wife, it is a reflection of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. The church graciously submits herself to the headship of Christ. Jesus submits himself to the headship of God and he gives himself for his wife, the church. It is a beautiful thing that goes back to the beginning. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. That's about the only verse that my father knows from the Bible. I'm sure Stephanie has heard my father quote this, and he always quotes it in the King James as well. I followed up with verse 21, but he really doesn't want to hear that. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So what's going on with this? This submission, this obedience? I would argue, on many levels, it's pedagogical. It teaches us, it trains us, it humbles us, it predisposes us to come under the authority and headship of the Lord our God. Now, this does not come naturally to people in general and certainly not to Americans. You know, we've definitely been reminded of that over the past three years. Kind of the, um, the foundational impetus the, the DNA that informs who we are as Americans is like that spirit, don't tread on me. You're not the boss of me. I'm independent. I'm autonomous. There's this instinctual revulsion against authority for Americans. It's just who we are. There's some good things about that, but there are also some negative things about that. What was the original sin in the garden? Adam and Eve said, we will not have this God, this man, to reign over me. And we have been following in his footsteps ever since. It is good for our sanctification to have to submit to the God-appointed lawful authorities in our lives. It is good. Now, I may get in huge trouble for this. It is good for our sanctification to have to submit to things that we don't agree with all the time. And that, that can be very, that can just chafe at who we are as Americans. It is good for my sanctification and yours to have to submit to lawful authorities in our life and the vast majority of situations. Are there situations where we have to obey God rather than man if the civil authorities are asking us to sin? Of course we obey God. But it's humbling and good for our sanctification to have to submit. Okay, if you're still with me, you haven't wanted to, to run out at this point. The next section is, I would say, even more difficult in our cultural context. Let me read it again. Chapter 3, verses 22 through 4, 1. 
this um, next section of submission. Bond servants, the Greek word is doulos. It means slaves. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward in doing this, slaves, you're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, meaning the master who is beating you and hurting you and sinning against you by brutalizing you, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, just because he's a master. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bond service. Treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you're like me, it's hard to believe that's actually in the Bible. If you're like me, oftentimes it's easy to gloss over this and go to different passages of Scripture, beautiful, wonderful passages that teach the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you're like me, you want to kind of like set this aside, you know, put it away. How are we to understand this? How are we to harmonize texts like these with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is gentle and lowly and gracious and humble of heart? How do we harmonize this with Paul's other teachings that there's neither slave nor free? How do we put these together? Have you ever felt the tension when you've read these texts? Oftentimes, people who um, are maybe more atheists or agnostics, they will read a text like this, and for them, it automatically falsifies the Bible. Automatically falsifies the character of God as described in Scripture. How would you explain it over lunch, or maybe a family member who didn't know or love the Lord Jesus Christ, if they asked you, if these kinds of things were in there, and how does this relate to the gospel? This was given after the gospel, after the person and work of Christ was being preached everywhere. Why didn't Paul, at a minimum, command Christians to free their slaves? Obviously, he had no authority to tell generic Roman citizens to do anything. Why didn't he tell Christians? to free the slaves. I don't think that's what he told Philemon to do. But let's talk about this. Sometimes what people do to, um, this is called like theodicy, like defending the character of God. Um, what they try to do is they try to minimize or lessen the brutality of first century Greco-Roman slavery, okay? Let me read you a quote from a pastor I very much respect. Here's how he tries to handle it. He writes, There is a vast difference between the deplorable wickedness that we see in a film like 12 Years a Slave and what Paul is addressing in the first century Ephesian church. Who here has seen 12 Years a Slave? 
or read the book. It's a fantastic movie. It's a great book by a black man named Solomon Northrup who was from the north and was stolen into slavery and shipped down to a plantation in the deep south where he was victimized and brutalized and tortured. And the things he saw, you can't believe it. It's a very powerful testimony of a former chattel slave. And so what this pastor is saying is don't superimpose that on first century Greco-Roman slavery. It's almost like people want to make first century Greco-Roman slavery, well, that's just, that was more like people make, having to work 50 hours a week or something like that. They try to make it a kinder, gentler slavery. First century Greco-Roman slavery could be equally difficult and barbaric. Let me read to you what Roman slavery was like, the kind of slavery that's in view in Colossae and Ephesus and elsewhere. Scholars estimate that about 10% of the Roman Empire's population were enslaved possibly up to 20%. This would mean for an estimated Roman Empire population of 50 million in the first century, between 5 and 10 million were enslaved. Well, what was life like for the enslaved in the Greco-Roman period in the first century? Under Roman law, enslaved people had no personal rights. Does that remind you of something? Chattel slaves, American plantation slaves, had no rights, no personal rights whatsoever. Neither did Roman slaves. Roman slaves were regarded as the property. That's what chattel means in a sense. The property of their masters. They could be bought, sold, mistreated at will. They were unable to own property, enter into a contract, or legally marry. Most slaves would never be freed. Unlike Roman citizens, Roman slaves could be subjected to corporal punishment, sexual exploitation, torture, and summary execution. In thinking about this and grappling this, we should not for one moment try to reimagine, re-envision first century Greco-Roman slavery. How in the world, in this context, could Paul encourage slaves to obey their masters? Couple things. First thing, I don't know that I can provide a satisfactory answer. This is going to be one of those questions like in the book of Job that we would love to ask. If we, could, if we could go back or if we could go and talk to the Lord and ask him directly or get in our DeLorean and go back in time and interview Paul, like what were you thinking? How could you possibly ask slaves to obey their masters? Isn't that anti-gospel in every way? Paul, how could you do this? I don't know that it will ever satisfy us. I think Paul, the church at this point was about, the church in Asia Minor, the church in the Roman Empire was probably about 10 years old and was being subjected to persecution and difficulty. I think Paul was a man that had to choose his battles carefully. If you look at the end of, of Colossians, um, or Colossians passage in your bulletin, 
He was in prison, he said, so that he could declare the mystery of Christ. I think he was trying to, I think he was trying to um, regulate and protect the slaves that found themselves in bondage. Look at the way he calls on masters to treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing you will be held accountable to God, knowing that he has no partiality. He was trying to regulate and protect the slaves under the care of other Christians. And I'll tell you this, I think it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I know it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that ultimately undermined and destroyed this institution. Some people might refer to this as like progressive illumination. That over time, as the church grew and the gospel pervaded Western civilization, it was in the West, it was in Western civilization that people started to understand more and more the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scholars, some scholars suggest that not even Paul and the earliest apostles understood every implication of the gospel. And that through progressive illumination under the power of the Holy Spirit, people understood more and more how the gospel was ultimately incompatible with this wicked institution. It was in the 19th century in Western civilization that Christians, Quakers and other Christians, William Wilberforce, our friend Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, and others spoke about the wickedness of chattel slavery. That if there is neither Jew nor Greek, or slave nor free, male nor female, if we are all one in Christ Jesus, and heirs according to the promise, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The progressive conviction of the Holy Spirit the progressive illumination of the Holy Spirit brought Christians to an awareness that this needed to change and stop. And it did. All praise and glory and honor to the power of the Holy Spirit that ended this wicked institution. I think Paul chose at the time to regulate it and to protect the slaves of the first century under Christian ownership. I wish he would have done something different. But God knows what he's doing. God, in his sovereign care, used somehow the wickedness and the barbarism of not just American chattel slavery, but slavery for the past four to 6,000 years. Somehow he used that. I can't conceive how. He uses that for his ultimate ends. He can use sin sinlessly. I think that's how we understand a passage like this. I don't think it serves us well to try to redefine first century slavery or even Hebrew slavery. Hebrew slavery was very different. It was a kind of indentured servitude, but there were other kinds of slavery in Old Testament Israel as well. I think it's the progressive understanding and implications of the gospel that destroyed it. And praise God that it did. Here we are at the end of chapter of our, of our scripture passage, 
chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul is beginning his descent. He's going to land the plane soon. In terms of the book of Colossians, he says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear. He says, I want to be, I want to be clear in my presentation of the gospel, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. He's saying, pray for me as I preach Christ. He's saying to them, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We, as Christians, we need to be sensitive to issues as it relates to slavery and race. We need to be very sensitive to that. You know, those of us who have, don't have ancestors who were subjected to chattel slavery in the American South or the United States as, as a whole, we, we can't relate to how difficult it was to how destructive it was, to how dehumanizing it was. And for that legacy to have continued for so many years, we need to be sensitive to that and aware of that. We need to preach Christ in the midst of these difficulties. Paul writes in chapter four, verse six, let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He said last week, Jesus said, all men, all women will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you show the graciousness and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ at home, in the church, at work, wherever you go, to show the winsomeness and the love of Jesus Christ. That is our calling, beloved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, this is, a, this is a difficult passage, especially in our cultural context. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who delivered us from our slavery and bondage to sin. We thank you that we are now counted as bondservants, as slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege that we have of submitting to his graciousness and authority. Husbands, I pray that you would help us to love our, live, our wives like Christ loved the church. Help us to give ourselves, putting their interest above our own. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help our wives to appropriately, lovingly, in a Christ-centered ways, submit to the leadership of their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help our children to obey the authority of their parents as appropriate. Help all of us by your grace and mercy and the power of your Holy Spirit to willingly and happily and humbly submit to the lawful authorities in our lives, knowing 
that it enables us more and more to submit to your lordship and your authority. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen.